0: Hi, I am Dylan Marin, and I'm the host of another podcast in the TED Audio Collective. My podcast is called The Redemption of Jar Jar Binks, and in it I dive in and explore how a comedic sidekick from a 1999 Star Wars movie became one of the most polarizing characters in cinema history— The Redemption of Jar Jar Binks is a six-part audio documentary, and it's all about why the character was so hated, then how that hate exploded on the early internet, and how the actor who played the character found a way to survive one of the internet's very first hate campaigns. What you're about to hear is the show's very first episode. So good news for you, there is no context needed. You don't even need to have ever seen a Star Wars movie. If you have, that's an added bonus. If you like what you hear, you can go ahead and search The Redemption of Jar Jar Binks wherever you get your podcasts. And you can even listen to the entire season, early and ad-free, by becoming a TED Audio Collective Plus subscriber on Apple Podcasts. All right, here it is, the very first episode of The Redemption of Jar Jar Binks.
1: (music) I do want to tell you, I, um, you know, I initially had some cold feet about talking to you. Your cold feet are not only um, uh,
0: seen, acknowledged, but welcome here. Okay, perfect. I'm talking to Kurt Volk. He's a graphic designer. He's a dad. He's a husband, and Kurt is also a Star Wars fan who camped out on the streets of Hollywood all so that he could be one of the very first people to see Star Wars Episode One. The Phantom Menace.
1: It's a very silly, silly, silly thing. The whole thing is very silly.
0: If you can believe it, my producer found Kurt through archival photos, which means that this is actually kind of like the opening of Titanic when they discover the portrait of young Rose. And then we, the audience, meet older Rose, who narrates what it was like in her past on the ship of dreams. Except...
1: Kurt's ship of dreams is a stretch of pavement in Los Angeles. Okay, so this is April, May 1999. Um, On the sidewalk on Hollywood Boulevard. In the photo we found, we see two people sitting under a tent.
0: But this is not your standard camping tent, okay? This tent looks like a fully functioning office. It's stocked with boxes of Altoids and bottles of water. It's daytime, and in the background, there's Kurt. Typing at a desktop computer, just your regular run-of-the-mill outdoor
1: desktop computer. They had organized along with the with the city somehow to tap into a phone line, so that was a dial-up modem. And so, you know, that was our kind of window into whatever was 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 actually happening online in in the lead up to the film. Um, was really through this like janky little um, desktop setup there, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, you know, we were out there for a month and a half. That's right,
0: you heard that correctly. Kurt and other devoted Star Wars
1: fans camped out for over a month. I was nine when Return of the Jedi came out. I kind of grew up with these movies.
0: For Kurt, Star Wars was a beloved, formative thing that existed firmly in his past. And then, in the 90s, rumors started to swirl about a new batch of Star Wars movies. Lo and behold the rumors were proven true. In the fall of 1998, a trailer was released. And fans were so eager to catch the first glimpse of this highly anticipated movie that they bought tickets to other movies that they had absolutely no intention to watch just so they could see the
1: Phantom Menace trailer. Fans like Kurt. We went to go see Micho Black. Um and left after the trailer. The trailer was, <laughs> was uh, everything. I completely flipped out. I still think that trailer is just a work of art. So I was on board. <laughs> yes, very on board. That
0: trailer came out in November of 1998. And a few months later, Kurt's friend Chris heard about fans lining up outside a movie theater in Hollywood. Kurt was 25 at the time. He was working
1: odd jobs in Chicago, and he thought to himself, what do I have to lose? It felt like a a kind of a transition point for me in my life. Like, I I had become an adult, I'd gone through college, I paid taxes, I was this, you know, grown up. And, you know, the last time a Star Wars movie had come out, I was nine years old. And I remember having this overwhelming feeling of curiosity of whether or not I would be able to go back to feeling the way I did when I was nine, when I was 25. And that was a big draw for me. So Kurt and his
0: friend Chris, they pack up a car and they drive to Los Angeles where they meet all sorts of Star Wars fans. For Kurt,
1: this was totally new. I didn't really know people that were into this stuff. Like, I didn't know people that liked what I liked. And, you know, I think that 99-2000 is this very interesting inflection point because it's, it's around that time that, like, geek culture, fan culture sort of starts to make that transition into, like, mainstream culture. And this inflection point can be credited in large part to the internet. Welcome. You've got mail.
0: More on that later in this episode and, you know, throughout the entire show. For now, let's get back to our friend Kurt, who was essentially living outside a movie theater surrounded by other Star Wars superfans.
1: You know, it's not easy. It's like sleeping on a sidewalk for a month and a half. And, you know, we would go across the street to the, um, the Roosevelt Hotel and like, you know, wash out our armpits in the, um, in the <laughs> hotel <laughs> sink, you know, in the lobby and
0: stuff. This crew formed a community, and they connected with each other,
1: permanently. So while we were all in line, we had the idea, like 30 of us, that we were like, you know what we should do, is we should all get matching tattoos. (laughs) Uh, while we're in line. And so somebody went down the street to a tattoo parlor on Hollywood Boulevard and they made like a package deal. They're like, anybody that walks in can get a tattoo, the same tattoo. Yeah. And it'll be like, it was like 20 bucks or something. And so the symbol that everybody like gravitated toward was the symbol of the Naboo. It was this this symbol that was on a lot of like the Queen Amidala Uh packaging and like on her doll and stuff. And this is it.
0: Now, at this point in our interview, Kurt holds up his right wrist to show me what is,
1: indeed, the symbol of the Naboo. Oh. I don't know if you can see that. Oh, my God, I can. And so everybody that was in line, or a lot of the people that were in line, all got that matching tattoo. So now when, when people at the grocery store, they're like, is that like a fleur-de-lis or something? I was like, well, no, it's actually the um, symbol of the Naboo <laughs> from the Starfighter. And do you remember... <laughs>
0: This line and the people in it became something of a novelty attraction, so people would
1: just stop by and like mm-hmm. leave stuff like we would get mm-hmm. like a thousand power bars <laughs> or like a a twenty five foot subway sandwich or something <laughs> like that would just show up and because <laughs> it was getting a lot of press i mean um how Gary Coleman showed up at one point <laughs> uh, i don't know weird al was there it was it was very it was it was very it's like a circus, a
0: six week circus. It was a, a six week circus. Yeah. circus, yeah. The circus reached a natural conclusion when release day arrived. The night before, Kurt and his crew of tattooed lined denizens began to assemble at the doors of Man's Chinese Theater in
1: Hollywood. I think we started lining up around like 9 p.m. or something like that, and then um, rolled into the theater at, at midnight.
0: The lights went down in the theater. Kurt and hundreds of other Star Wars fans finally got to see the movie they'd been waiting for for so long.
1: Um, Whatever the movie was trying to do, it did not connect with me. So I left the theater feeling extremely depressed. I really felt like it was something in me. I did not see that really as like a shortcoming of the movie, as much as like I felt like something in me had grown cold to this type of like storytelling, and that I had kind of um, grown up, and like that was like something I was incapable of connecting with anymore.
0: But while Kurt focused inward, wondering if he had lost a part of himself. Some others looked out to identify the culprit that ruined their beloved film franchise.
1: The whole like negative reaction was like, the reason I didn't want to talk to you. And the way that he was mistreated and the way that that character was, was like maligned and stuff, that whole thing like makes me so sad. The character that Kurt is
0: referring to is one that is beloved by some and reviled by others. A character whose debut in The Phantom Menace represented a milestone in cinematic visual effects. A character who sparked a backlash so severe that it had profound psychological effects on the actor who played him. A character named Jar Jar Binks. Welcome to The Redemption of Jar Jar Binks. I'm Dylan Marin. Thanks for being here. Whatever the name Jar Jar Binks means to you, I suspect you don't know the whole story To quote the indelible catchphrase of MTV's iconic docu-series, Diary, you think you know, but you have no idea. Um, when I say Jar Jar Binks, what comes to mind for you? (laughs) Oh
2: God, so many things. (laughs) You know, kind of being like sort of a minstrel character and all of that stuff.
0: I loved Jar Jar Binks, and I think if I were to watch the movie now, or show my future kids the movie, I would still love Jar Jar Binks. Growing up, I gravitated towards Jar Jar Binks, mm-hmm. and my dad was like, that is a nasty character, why would you like him? Nasty I think character? Nasty is not his words, but no, he was I like, know. that is like the silliest character, and I hate him. I unironically loved Jar Jar Binks when I was nine years old, until I realized that other kids did not like him.
1: Ridiculous pandering a little too childish for Star Wars. (laughs) Uh, I think Jar Jar Binks was
0: a socially questionable, stereotypical character that was perfect for a child audience. As you may have gathered from this beautiful collage of reactions from my family and friends, the name Jar Jar Binks functions as a Rorschach test. Over the course of the next six episodes, we're going to explore why this fictional character drew such a strong response from the most ardent Star Wars fans and casual moviegoers alike. We're going to dig into how that response went viral at a time when the word viral was more commonly used to describe a medical condition than a pop culture trend. And we're going to see how something that sounds like an ironic novelty story actually has some profound implications for our current era. And yeah, from time to time, I'm gonna be using pretentious phrases like profound implications. Deal with it. And now we have arrived at the part where I should tell you what brought me to this story. I am Jar Jar Binks. Just kidding. I spent five years making a podcast called Conversations with People Who Hate Me, which is, I mean, well, it's actually exactly what it sounds like. I called up some of the people who had written hate messages to me online. I recorded those calls with their consent, of course, and I turned those recordings into a podcast. So if someone called me an idiot or a moron or one of the various gay slurs the English language has to offer, I'd call them up to chat. It wasn't about shaming them, but instead, it was about genuinely fostering a connection while still making sure to use that connection as a foundation to explore our conflict head-on. At the very end, uh, you said that being gay is a sin. Why did you want me to hear that?
1: Uh, Like I said, I was angry. I was... Humans tend to type and say things out of anger that they wouldn't normally say. So I was basically, unfortunately, trying to hurt you. And they came back and bit me in the butt.
0: As the project continued, I expanded the show. No longer only speaking to my own detractors, I stepped into the moderator role and connected strangers to each other. Colleen, uh, you're on the line, and you're on the line with Amanda. Hi, Colleen. Oh, hi, Amanda. Those also started going well.
2: I just want to say thanks. You're the first uh, transgender Marine I've ever met in my life.
0: Oh, awesome. And thank you so much for coming on here and letting me share my story, too. And through dozens of conversations, I found some patterns. You tagged me in this post. Did you want me to see it? (laughs) I honestly didn't think that you would. (laughs) Did you think that I would read the message?
1: No, you know, your video probably had a bunch of comments on it. I
0: really
2: use Twitter as like a shouting into the void kind of thing, but it's like, oh, it's not the void. The void has human emotions also, as it (laughs) turns out. (laughs) There are people in there.
0: Over and over again, it was apparent that my guests had forgotten that an actual human was going to see their message or comment because the internet makes it particularly easy to forget that we're interacting with actual human people and not a grainy profile picture or an anonymized username. And yeah, 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 I get it. That's like Internet 101. But just because it's an obvious point doesn't mean it's one that we've successfully internalized. We're dehumanized online. And this dehumanization makes it much harder to empathize with each other and therefore easier to hate each other and be hated in return. While making conversations with people who hate me, I became fascinated with the concept of the Internet's main character. The Internet's main character. If you couldn't tell, that was just me using my hands to cup them around my mouth. Anyway, okay, moving on. The term was coined in January of twenty nineteen by Twitter user Maple Cocaine, who wrote, Each day on Twitter there is one main character. The goal is to never be it. What has always stood out to me about the Internet's main character is that they are often forged out of apolitical moments of friction online. Meaning they're typically reviled not for an ideological transgression, but but instead some goofy misstep that is perceived as cringe. But the response to this central figure is essentially a form of acceptable bullying. The swarm of jokes at their expense are often funny, which help us laugh it off as the entertainment of that day on the Internet. But it's hardly ever entertaining to the person at the bottom of the pylon. Now, shame is not new. But social media accelerates this pylon at a terrifying speed. If conversations with people who hate me taught me that online negativity was born out of the way we dehumanize each other online, then the idea of the internet's main character is a perfect illustration of this lesson. It's even right in the name. They're regarded as a character and not a human being. And I don't think There is a story that better encapsulates this than the story of Jar Jar Binks. Now, I had long been familiar with the vague shapes of what happened. I knew that the character was widely criticized, that his name was a punchline, but I didn't understand how such a pile-on happened years before social media as we know it was even invented. So I started digging into the story, And the deeper I got, I realized that this was much bigger and more significant than run-of-the-mill internet beef. Was Jar Jar Binks the internet's first main character? More in just a minute. So let me explain Jar Jar Binks to those of you who aren't familiar. Jar Jar Binks is a Gungan, a mostly underwater species that lives on the planet Naboo. He's bipedal, amphibious, with long elephant-like ears, and he becomes the sidekick to Jedi Qui-Gon Jinn. Now I do realize that as I said all of that, that probably made you more confused. Um, okay, let's try this. Here is someone who I guarantee knows less about Star Wars than you do. My mom. Can you hear me? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hi. Hi. What are you going to show me? Okay. Well, I have an opening question for you. Okay. Would you say that you are well versed in the Star Wars universe?
1: Totally not.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Totally not. (laughs) That's an official no. Official no. Okay. I'm going to share my screen with you, and I want you to tell me who this is. Okay. All right, who is this? Is this Jar Jar Binks? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, you're kidding. That's what Jar Jar looks like? How would you describe this being? Well, there's something kind of touching about him. It's those doleful eyes, I think. And he's got this little snout of a mouth. He's got this
1: plaintive look on his face. So he's endearing in a way. He's a weird as hell guy. But
0: he's endearing. Weird as hell guy, but endearing. Me in middle school or Jar Jar Banks? You decide. Okay, glad we did that exercise, but I am fully aware that you all have Google and know how to use it. But you know what you don't have? You don't have my producer, Amy. And honestly, thank God, because you would all become way too powerful. Hello. Hi. Amy has lured me onto a Zoom call so that she can share her research about how Jar Jar, Star Wars, and the Internet itself were written about in the late 90s. May
2: 1999, Portland Press Herald. But this was an AP article. So this one I saw kind of got syndicated in a lot of places. But uh, the headline is called A Force on the Net. Net with a Apostrophe apostrophe. net.
0: Wow. Oh, the sweet, sweet 90s, when the word net was slang and also specific enough to describe a place. Articles like these are helpful reminders of the distance between traditional media and the web. I mean, this is a print article, and it is literally about the fact that Star Wars fan websites exist. And helpfully, it lists them.
2: I want you to read number five
0: www.theforce.net. This Houston based site is generally considered one of the best fan and news sites for Star Wars junkies. Do you know more about theforce.net? So I did some
2: digging. Uh oh. And I was able to find what the website looked like April 27th, 1999.
0: Thanks to the Wayback Machine, Amy and I have stepped into a portal and are looking at the force.net as it was right before The Phantom Menace premiered.
2: So very wow. cheesy banner with, like, <sighs> I can't make out what characters those are.
0: You guys, these pixels are so enormous that you can practically count them. Amy clicks to another page she found on the same website.
2: So this is still the force.net. This is <gasps> from May 8th, 1999 and they have character pages for each of the characters. And who did I find?
0: Okay, if you don't know the answer to this, sweetie, you have not been listening to this episode. Amy found, say it with me now, Jar Jar Binks. So on this character page, there are already character quotes and screenshots. Presumably all from the trailers that have been released. It's actually not totally clear. Anyway... On this Jar Jar Binks page,
2: if I can zoom in a little bit here,
0: we find a bunch of early details that fans have collected on the character, both unofficial and official.
2: People associated with the film are giving interviews. So one interview in issue 13 of the Star Wars (gasps) Galaxy magazine, Rick McCallum, who's the producer, he says, My favorite character in episode one is an amazing new character, which will eventually require Mm. computer animation and Mm. post-production work. He's a wonderful sidekick. He's discovered by Liam Neeson's character, and he becomes a part of the Jedi entourage. He plays a seriously major role in the story. He'll be in the film for an hour.
0: The producer, Rick McCallum, is basically trying to describe to fans what a motion capture performance is. And honestly, maybe I should too. Because in case I haven't already made this clear, Jar Jar Binks is a CGI character that was actually played on set by a human actor. And then that performance was then used as a base for the animation. Now, today... We're much more accustomed to this, right? We know, for example, that there are real actors playing characters in the Avatar movies. We know that Paul Bettany plays Vision in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But this was a really novel idea for the late 90s. It even predated Andy Serkis' debut as Gollum and Smeagol in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. But let's be real. This is such a highly anticipated film that fans aren't just going to settle for official statements from the film's producer they're gonna want Inside Dirt too.
2: And then there's a section called Spy Reports. That's all <gasps> people with some sort of knowledge. This is as far back as 1998. They're getting these early reports about Jar Jar. Oh, wow. And so then this was a, an unnamed source from mm-hmm. July 7th, 1998. How can uh-huh. I describe Jar Jar? He's a Gungan. A race of aliens.
0: For being written 10 months ahead of the movie's release, This comment contains a pretty accurate physical description of Jar Jar Binks. But what's really interesting to me is what this insider says at the end of their spy report.
2: He's also the thing that's going to make this film more like Jedi than Empire, more kids film than adult. Identifying
0: Jar Jar as not only a bumbling character, but the culprit that transforms the movie into a quote-unquote kids film is interesting because that became one of the central complaints about the character.
2: So there's so many details about Jar Jar out there. Yeah. And so if you're a fan and you're on these websites, you already are starting to form an opinion.
0: The take, as we can see, was already starting to form.
2: And they have this screenshot. Do you recognize what this is from?
0: I. It must be from Vanity Fair. I know that font. So. Wow.
2: This was the cover of Vanity Fair in February of 99.
0: Amid all this speculation, the cast of the new movie appears on the cover of Vanity Fair, back when being visible on a magazine stand was like an enormous deal. In this photo, the four main cast members are all assembled in the Tunisian desert. So we have a camera, we have lighting equipment. The vibe is very behind the scenes, actors still in costume and they're just hanging out between takes so we've got liam neeson we've got natalie portman and then ewan mcgregor is just off to the side and behind them is jar jar binks no not the actor who played jar jar but the digital rendering of the character It's a photo that's half realism and half fantasy, right? On the one hand, you have these flesh-and-blood actors who you know and love. And on the other hand, you have a CGI alien. Maybe it's because I know where this story goes, but it feels like all of the elements of a perfect storm are beginning to form For one thing, fans are communicating on centralized internet forums, and traditional media is directing more people to those spaces. And on those centralized internet forums, an anonymous spy report has identified Jar Jar Binks as the reason the movie will be a kid's movie. And then, as we saw in the Vanity Fair cover photo, Jar Jar is being visually sold to audiences not as a character played by an actor, but a character devoid of any connection to a real person. Which makes it harder to empathize with him and much easier to hate.
1: Like the movie... Hated Jar Jar. He was
2: more of a technology demonstration than a character.
1: He is very annoying. When my friend and I saw the movie, we didn't see the whole thing because we were too busy throwing popcorn at him on the screen. Jar,
2: jar sucks.com Jar, jar must I
1: hate Jar Jar because he pretty much sums up everything that was wrong with episode one.
2: Jar Jar absolutely ruined the movie for me. Burn in
1: jarjar.com Please hurt him plenty. If jar Jar Binks were drowning. I would throw him a stone.
0: The thing about many of the characters we encounter, both in films and online, is that behind them is a real human being. All right, my name is Ahmed Best. I am uh, a son, I'm a husband, I'm a father. I am a, an educator. I am a writer, I'm a director, I am an actor. You are very famous for playing a very uh, culturally significant role Mm. in the zeitgeist. Yes, that's very true. What is that role? Um, I played Jar Jar Binks in Star Wars, in Star Wars prequels, The Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, and in Revenge of the Sith. Coming up on The Redemption of Jar Jar Binks. For anyone Black in this country to
1: choose to be an artist mm. takes an insurmountable amount of courage. It's a tall task to put a an animated character into a live action movie next to Liam Neeson and Ewan McGregor and Natalie Portman. For our audience members, there's a little lizard voice in the back going, is it real? 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 Do I believe in it? Am I engaged in it?
2: Oftentimes when Black characters are accepted, in narrative spaces, it is often to serve as the clown. In
1: 1999, when I watched Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, I hated Jar Jar so much that I made the Jar Jar hate page. I think there is the possibility that The Phantom Menace is a singularity of some sort.
0: You know, Star Wars is this thing that can like really take over your life. The Redemption of Jar Jar Binks is a part of the TED Audio Collective. It's produced by Amy Gaines McQuaid, Jacob Smith, and me, Dylan Marin. Our editors are Ban Ban Cheng and Michelle Quint. Additional editing by Jimmy Gutierrez and Alejandra Salazar. Production support from Roxanne High Lash. Mastering by Ben Tolliday, who also made our theme with help from Jason Gambrell. Additional production help from Nisha Venkut. Fact-checking by Kate Williams with Julia Dickerson. Special thanks to Greta Cohn and Dan O'Donnell.